We return to our interview and dialogue with Colonel Richard Black as he's relating some of the -the on-the-ground Syrian activities that went on that went unreported by our media, but in alternative medias were reported to a certain extent. Yeah, it's striking to me. I cut my teeth on U.S. foreign policy in El Salvador and Guatemala during the 60s and 70s and 80s. And, you know, the death squads and those same type of inhumane humans that basically tried to win their way by just using brute terror tactics and such. And then I think also about in the Ukraine, the very well-documented neo-Nazi elements within their army as well. It's hideous to think these are the types of folks that seem to be on our side. Let me move to another area that I think is really important. In electoral politics, and you visited with President Assad on two different occasions, just real quickly, there was a constitutional referendum that was held in Syria in February of 2012, where a new constitution was drafted and adopted by the Syrians. Within that template as well, if you look at how Bashar al-Assad took power in Syria, it was through a referendum in 2000 that followed the death of his father, who was quite a different ruler, I might add. But at the same time, this was a referendum. And then there was elections in 2007 and 2014 and 2021. And it's striking to me that during all these elections, despite the fact that there were international observers at many of them, the Western press completely negated them, said that they were completely fabricated, that there were not real elections. Yet what the Western press never talked about were the allied countries that we don't critique, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, these Gulf monarchies, that, Colonel, they don't even have a constitution. They don't even have electoral rights. From your perspective and experience in Syria, can you speak to the uninformed American public as to what the real conditions on the ground were? I know personally, I won't get into the polling, maybe a little bit later in the show I will, but the polling by groups that were from all throughout the Middle East consistently pointed to the fact that Assad had much greater support than we make him out to be this great dictator and all that, an oppressive leader. And, and if you say anything else, you're an Assad apologist or whatever. But can you give us, from your experience and from your study, the overall electoral and constitutional type of nature of what's developed in Syria, despite this horrific war that's gone on for the last 10 or 12 years? I think it's important for people to understand that Syria has the, the most advanced constitution in the Middle East. It provides for religious freedom. It provides the greatest women's rights of of any nation in the uh, Middle East. It it tends to be somewhat socialist in its nature. That's not to take away anything. It's just the, the government that they choose. The president is elected in a fair process. The last election that was held was in 2021. Now, keep in mind that Here, this war has been going on since 2011. So, you know, now we're looking at 11 years of war. And during all this time, there is not a single leader that the West has been able to promote that has ever enjoyed 
popularity among this Syrian people. And so President Assad is by far the most popular figure in Syria. In 2021, when the presidential elections were held, they were censored in the Western press. If if the Western press had reported on them, it would have just torn their whole narrative to pieces because there was such an outpouring of jubilation all across the nation of Syria. It was very much like VJ Day at the end of the Second World War, where Americans just poured into the streets and, you know, sailors were kissing, kissing women in the streets and, you know, all these, these famous things. That was the atmosphere that took hold after President Bashar al-Assad was reelected as president in 2021. Now, there was hardly a whisper of it in the Western press. You'd have thought that there hadn't even been an election. But the turnout was massive. People wanted to vote. It was sort of their way of having some power to make a statement to the West that we reject what you're trying to do. We reject your terrorists. We reject your rapists. We reject your crucifiers, your beheaders, all of these people you're sending to us. And this is our chance to rise up. I'm going to tell you there were scenes in the streets where there were literally hundreds of thousands of people packing the streets, just jubilant, incredible happiness among the people. Now, going back to the Syrian constitution, one of the principal critics of the Syrian constitution has been the Saudi Arabians. Now, it's interesting that Saudi Arabia has no constitution, and yet they turn around and they criticize Syria for not having a a liberal enough constitution. Now, here you've got Saudi Arabia. When the crown prince orders it done, you have Jamal Khashoggi kidnapped by a bunch of secret agents and chopped up into pieces, smothered with a, a plastic bag over his head, dismembered, put into suitcases and flown out of the country. Now, you don't see President Bashar al-Assad doing that. That's not his style. In, in Saudi Arabia, the, it hasn't been that long ago. I forget the precise number, but they just decided to have a big execution. And they, they beheaded about 80 people in one day. Most of them were political dissidents, people who disagreed with the government. You don't do that. You, that's not done by the Syrian government. That's done by the U.S.-backed rebels all the time. I think the Syrian constitution is a model for all of the Middle East. If if the Middle East could have constitutional government like they have in Syria, if they could have women's rights, if they could have religious freedom like they have in Syria, the Middle East would be a century advanced from where it is. It would be five centuries in some cases advanced from from where it is today. Yeah, there was a a number of polls that it was interesting from the beginning of the conflict as early as 2012, most Syrians recognized that President Assad was their most viable leader, and it increased over years. Some of these pollings actually came from Doha is the capital of Qatar, you know, the- Yes, that's right. And Qatar actually funded some of these polls 
one such one back in 2012, some 55% of Syrians wanted Assad to stay. They were motivated by this fear of this terrorist-led civil war. As, as you went on, there were other types of polling as well that indicated the same concerns. And actually, one was by the ORB International, where they surveyed some 1,365 Syrians. And I mean, you can find this online. 81% of the Syrians polled believe that ISIL and ISIS was a foreign American-made group. You have talked extensively about this very fact. So the average American is propagandized into thinking, well, yeah, the Syrian government controls all the information. Therefore, they've brainwashed other people to think that ISIS is a foreign American-made group, yet it either is or it isn't. And based on your vast experience, and I'm sure seeing classified and unclassified documents, and we talked about it last week a little bit about how we knew very early that, that, the, that the uprising against Syria was mainly a jihadist one. But, but I guess that's just really an important type of, in, of interest for me is that you don't hear anything from the Syrian perspective. You just hear how we broach that subject. And then lastly, when it comes to this U.S. involvement there in the Constitution itself, part of that Syrian Constitution stated in that you could not run for president of Syria if you were not Syrian and you were not in Syria. There's all of these groups that are paid incredible amounts of money outside the United States. They're exile groups. They have not even been in the heart of the Syria for years and years. And we're constantly promoting that they are the ones or the sourcing of information that, that accesses the public is solely from these groups. This is what the U.S. government controlled. Mainstream media creates a narrative without any form of opposition, which makes it pure propaganda. Can you share a little bit more? You had two visits with Assad. I don't want to make him out to be some type of deity or something like that, but it's a fascinating story. You indicated somewhere in your earlier comments, I think from that 2021 Schiller speech, the amount of military power that's been pointed at Syria these last 10 or 12 years, just the sheer fact that he's still there, he's still popular, to me indicates that he is popular. Can you share that perspective for the listener that is very doubtful of this caricature we're, we're starting to create? a counter caricature of the Syrian government and electoral process. It's constitution. And of Assad himself. You know, I think it might be of interest for people to know a little bit about the character of Bashar al-Assad and his wife, Asma al-Assad. Now, first of all, Bashar never wanted to be in political life at all. He was a doctor. He was an eye doctor, ophthalmologist. He was trained in, in the West, in London. His wife, she was born of Syrian parents, but she was raised in London. And she had worked for Goldman Sachs, very accomplished. And I think she, when, they, when they met, uh, she was planning to go off to study at Harvard. The two of them are extremely intelligent. What happened is the brother of Bashar al-Assad was killed in an accident. He was being groomed as the next leader of Syria. Bashar was, he was a rather mild-mannered, mild-spoken individual, but his father had no choice, basically. So they began to, to groom 
Bashar al-Assad to be president. Assad's only political involvement prior to that was setting up the computer club of Syria. It was just sort of a hobby type of thing that he had done. So he and his wife, they're very, very deeply in love. They're, they're a young couple. Of course, the years are going on, but quite young when, when he took over. And they came in as perhaps a little bit starry-eyed idealists. They believed in democracy. They, they wanted to improve the country, and they set about doing it. There's a wonderful article that has been censored. Uh, it was published in Vogue magazine, and it was about Asma al-Assad, the first lady. Beautifully written. It described her to a T because she did not know the ins and outs of Syrian life. She secretly went to Syria when she was about to be married, and she worked in 300 different businesses across Syria. She would work waiting tables. She would work carrying suitcases, or she would work for a government agency or for a school. She wanted to understand the thought processes of ordinary, everyday Syrian citizens. I knew a fellow from up in in New York City. He was a doctor, and he had owned an apartment in Damascus, Syria. And he said that while he was there, he came home from work one night, and a neighbor said, said, guess what? Do you know who has moved in to the apartment up the stairs from you? And he said, no, who? He says, it's it's the, the president and his wife and his children. So they just moved into an apartment with everybody else. So the, like I say, these are idealists. They're not interested in, in building palaces like President Erdogan of Turkey, who built himself a thousand room palace. They don't have a palace. They just moved into an apartment. And Bashar al-Assad is quite famous for driving his own SUV when he brings visitors to the country. Now, it's a little harder today, but even today, around Christmas time, he will drive his SUV to Christmas Mass, and he'll attend Mass. Now, he's not Christian. He's, he's an Alawi, which is a, it's, it's a religion of its own, but a, a very westernized liberal religion. Anyway, he attends Mass, and he just shows up. They take their children to public school, and in one instance, you had the terrorists who would target the public schools, and they targeted the school where the Assads had their children, and this particular day, they were not able to take the children, and there was a mortar attack that killed a bunch of the, a bunch of the parents and the children as they arrived at school. So when the school reopened after a couple of days, Asma al-Assad, the first lady, was walking her children to the school. And the other mother said, what are you doing? Are you insane? You're risking your life. Don't you know all these people were killed here and the children were killed? And Asma al-Assad said, we're Syrian. We share the same dangers and the same hazards as everyone else. So these are very unique couple. And if you look at the fact that two-thirds of the industrialized and military power of the world has descended on a small country of 23 million inhabitants. How do you come up with the two-thirds of the world's military and 
I was interested. I saw that in one of your yes. speeches. Can you share that? Well, if, if you look at it, all of NATO is opposed to Syria, trying to bring it down. The United States, Canada, all of the, all of the European countries, most of the Middle Eastern countries. Mm-hmm. And so if you put all of that together, now the Chinese are not against them. The Russians are not against them. Uh, the Iranians are not against them. There, there are some places, but... But you're talking about military and, and, and industrial power, not population power. That, that's correct. That's correct. It's not population. Right. Last question, because it's connected to what you just said. So you got two thirds of the world's military industrial power led by the United States and NATO funneling, as you've already documented last week, shiploads of these terrorists into Syria. We have illegally been occupying eastern Syria, just one example of our illegal foreign policy behaviors. And at the same time, we lecture all nations of the world regarding rules-based order, which, as you have indicated, are basically rules that we make up as we go along. But also, what I wanted you to address is to let our listeners know that it's not just a military war, it's this economic sanction and blockade of Syria as well, and that impact that it has on Syria. It seems like we have no accountability. We we destroyed Iraq. We completely destroyed Libya. And Syria. Over a million people have died. Tens of millions of more have been displaced and or disenfranchised. We have not made any amends of trying to rebuild these nations in any significant way. Can you speak a little bit to that part of the Syrian reality as we wrap up tonight's part two with the Honorable Colonel Richard Black? Yes. What happened is the the Syrian army, with some assistance from the Russian Air Force, began to roll back ISIS and al-Qaeda. And they were on the verge of, of basically annihilating them across the country. Secretary of State John Kerry landed in the Middle East and he made a statement in great frustration because he saw that uh, all of the terrorists we had supported were being rolled back. And he made a comment that no one understood right at the time, but he said, well, he said, maybe it's time that we move to plan B. Well, what plan B turned out to be is the United States invaded the northeastern portion of Syria. We seized control of it. Now, why did we seize control of it? Now, there was no legal basis. It had This hadn't been authorized by the United Nations or, or even by NATO. We just decided we're going in and we're going to conduct a war of aggression and we're going to seize this part of Syria. So we seized it and we occupy it today. What were we after? We were after two things. The first thing is that that area is the breadbasket of Syria. John Kerry knew that if we seized that area, we could create famine within the country of Syria. And we have effectively created famine and starvation for the Syrian people. This is a plus for the State Department, is to create famine. And we have done it. The next thing that we wanted to accomplish by seizing that area is that 70% of Syria's export revenue comes from the export of oil. They're not a huge oil exporter, but they did export oil. And we were able to seize the bulk of their oil and gas production. We knew that as people were starving, 
We knew that with the cities in rubble because of the war that we promoted, that people were exposed to the cold in the winter. And we understood that if we could cut off the oil, we could freeze to death, maybe not the young people, but we could freeze to death the old people during the winter times in Syria. And we have done this. We've done it effectively. I just spoke with a young woman who returned from Syria, and she was just heartbroken by what the elderly people are going through. Because she said, you know, you can put blankets on and that kind of thing if you're young. But if you're old, it's just so hard to endure the bitter cold with no heat, with the building collapsed around you. Now, beyond seizing Northeast Syria, there were other parts of Plan B. And one of the principal parts was what was called the Caesar Sanctions. The U.S. Congress, not everybody voting in favor of it, but administration was able to push through Caesar sanctions that were the toughest sanctions ever imposed on any nation in history. Now, the importance of, of the Caesar sanctions was that it delegitimized the Syrian dollar so that the dollar couldn't be traded. It blocked all imports of things like medical equipment. Now, it doesn't officially block medical equipment. It's just that we've blocked the mechanism to pay for it. So of course, you can't get it if you can't pay for it. So we've made sure that if a woman in Syria contracts breast cancer, as, as women often do as they get a little older sometimes, it's very treatable in Western countries. Uh, but over there, we've ensured that uh, a woman who contracts cancer in Syria, she simply dies from it. We have blocked access to prosthetic devices for soldiers who lose arms and legs fighting the terrorists that we sponsor over there. So we have done everything to make it painful. And the language of the Caesar sanctions actually say that the objective is to prevent the rebuilding of all of the destroyed buildings across Syria so that we force people to live in poverty. It, it is astounding. Now, not only that, when uh, Mike Pompeo was the Secretary of State, he announced that they were going to have the toughest sanctions, the biggest, the baddest sanctions. He's quite a bully. In any event, I don't know that he had anything to do with it. I just know that it was very shortly after he made his bellicose comments that there was a mysterious explosion of a ship in the main harbor of Beirut, Lebanon. And it was a massive fertilizer explosion that wiped out the entire business district, killed or injured about 3,000 people, and collapsed the banking system of Lebanon. Now, the importance of this is that many Syrians and many Syrian businesses did their banking through Lebanon. So I don't think it was a coincidence that this bomb was exploded and all these people were slaughtered in Beirut. It certainly tied in with Plan B of the U.S. State Department. I'm not saying the State Department planned the explosion. I'm not saying that Mike Pompeo planned the explosion. They may have had nothing to do with it. It may have been some other nation that did it. Maybe it was an accident, but it was a very peculiar coincidence that it came right on the heels of these announcements that we were going to 
really cut off every blood vessel that kept the Syrian people alive. So Very this is what we've done. There's there's no act of greater cruelty that you can point to in the world today than what we do to Syria. So this is the 2019 legislation by Trump that signed it into law that, that continues to be in law under President Biden. That's so, correct. Colonel, we have taken up a great amount of your time. Let me let you go. Before you do go, let me ask you, your contacts in Syria are pretty significant, right? Since you visited it a couple of times and you continue to relate personal experiences, can you indicate how many significant contacts in Syria? Well, through most of the war, uh, we have had thousands of people of all walks of life from high level to peasants. Uh, and I've had sort of a, uh, a private intelligence source through Janus Court, court Camp. And that served us very well through most of the war. It gave us an independent source of information outside of the government, either the the U.S. or Western governments or the Syrian government itself. We feel very confident of our information. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your insights. You're a real patriot for bringing truth to the forefront based on your experiences and such. Thank thank you for what you're doing, Pedro. Okay, we'll stay in touch. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Okay, well, we'll see you next week. Don't be late. Also, we need you to switch on over to the internet if you're not already there to access Lost in Paradise coming up next on 91.7 KOOP. It's a show that evolves around laid-back grooves, both old and new, Nothing too slow or fast. Enjoy your time with Chad D. As we do every show, we take you out with Land of Naivety. See you next week. Check out the bozo.